Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Well, good morning and welcome again, and welcome to those of you who are downstairs. We see you, kind of, through the floor, but we know you're there, and we welcome you in YouTube and Zoom as well. So today, our passage, as we're moving through this study of Matthew, wants us to talk about marriage and singleness. I'm reminded of something Samuel Butler said back in the 17th century uh, that kind of startles you when you hear it about marriage, particularly, he says, for in what stupid age or nation was marriage ever out of fashion? Yeah. 50% of American adults are single. The median age for a first marriage is the highest ever in the history of our country. Another interesting trend is that women who lost their virginity as a teenager were twice as likely as other women to report getting divorced in their 20s. Only 42.3% of 62-year-old adults were still in their first marriage. Think about that. On it goes. Baby boomers are divorcing at the highest rate of any demographic. 27% of millennials are married and 59% are single. This is a sharp contrast, even if you compare uh, to the Gen Xers at 36% or the baby boomers at 40% when they were, 48% when they were of that same age. I hear more and more anecdotally, maybe you do too, that marriage just, well, it is out of fashion. Many are understandably second-guessing it, thinking it. Very, very cautious about entering into it. I mean, with the boomer statistic we just heard, you can't blame them. It's been a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering that often is attributed to marriage. I won't go into all of the historical trends that have led to that. There are significant post-enlightenment kinds of trends, I think, that relate to all this. But today our passage just wants us to reconsider it in the context of a debate that took place in the life of Christ during his ministry. He's going to want us to talk about marriage, but also celibacy. It's going to be strange because as he corrects some thinking about it, by affirm, well, that's not the right word, by condoning divorce and, in fact, attributing singleness to the high honor that it should be considered, he is ironically applying grace to marriage and to the institution of marriage, particularly in a society where, let's keep in mind as you read this, if you heard, I mean, listening even to those scriptures read that we heard, weren't you just a little bit taken aback that everything was directed to the man? Your situation, is, well, I wasn't supposed to be funny, whoever that was, but I can get it. Yeah, it is kind of funny, but, but everything was directed to the man. I, I guess, yeah, I could see how that could go the funny way. Uh, it's all our fault, I'm sure. But... Um, but no, it's interesting because, you see, in the culture that Christ lived in, and particularly in the ancient Near East, it was a very patriarchal culture. There weren't many, if at all, civil rights attributed to women. 
And so there is an abusiveness that emerged in that culture, as it does today. But particularly an abusiveness is that Moses and even Christ conceded, and therefore, in the law of God, both the Old Testament and in the New, we see a concession against the abusiveness of marriage, particularly with a view towards saving or helping the women, but also to save marriage itself. You're going to need to take this sermon and understand that there's a lot here, and I will be walking us through it, but just a little bit more uh, head than maybe you, you used, you're used to. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would enlighten us, restore us. We see in our country, in our world, even in the church, that well, marriage honestly is sometimes out of fashion. And we need it to be restored since evidently it is a very important and beautiful thing to you. So help us now to understand. Let us get it right in principle that we might then get it right in practice. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So just to know that beginning in chapter 19 of Matthew, we embark upon a series of what you could describe as conflict narratives. It literally will take you all the way to the cross. This passage, of course, um, is, is one of those, those narratives. Sometimes it results in judgment oracles. Here it results in clarification oracles, if you will. For you'll see in our passage, did you notice that the way the whole thing starts is after Jesus has been working these great miracles and you see the presence of God and its power bringing salvation to the world, then come these edgy, little, snarky, little, hyper-semantic-oriented Pharisees. I say all that with tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but we all, don't, don't be judgmental. They represent us all in different ways and places. And you'll notice this word test. It says that in verse 3 that the Pharisees came in order to test him. What does it mean to test? This is really a whole sermon that I almost was tempted to stop and preach one verse. I'll spare you, I promise. But what you need to understand, particularly in the context of this word in Matthew, is that it happens always to play upon the crowds. It's to play upon the crowds with semantics and, and, and twisted concepts and terms in order to politicize something that's already very sensitive in the culture. It, these guys were masters at leveraging sensitive conversations that are going on in the time in a way that was meant to diminish Christ's authority and diminish his power as it threatened their own political power, particularly in the culture. Now, I know that doesn't sound familiar. I know that we're not prone to politicization, but that's what happened back then, okay? But let, let me give you an example. The same word where there's a little more context given is in Matthew 22. In that context, I mean, what is more politicized than money? And the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in words. Always a red flag in Scripture. 
For they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully, coming in the pretense of, Teach us, Master, teach us. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Of course, this is in a context where there was a messianic notion that Christ had come to overturn Caesar and to seize power in a revolutionary sort of framework rather than to reconcile the Caesar community to Christ or to the Lord. Very different agenda. Jesus then aware of their, the word here is malice or their, their cunning, said, why then do you put me to test? See how that word's being used? 1 Timothy 1.4 picks this up, how there are always those in the church who, who devote themselves to what he called fables or myths or, or these concepts and endless word studies and which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship, which is, of course, what God would teach. He's much more concerned about stewarding one's life, and Titus says the same thing. And so it is it, So here we are in a context where, well, quite frankly, uh, the politically uh, heated context of marriage, as I'll show you, is being leveraged in order to diminish Christ. So the question is this, notice it carefully. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Notice the any cause. Before I get to the answer, let me help you understand why that's so significant. In the context of that day, the debate surrounded Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, but within the Jewish community particularly. Let me read it to you carefully. Here it is, 24, 1 through 2. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him, finds no favor in his eyes, because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. She then leaves his house and goes off to become another man's wife. Now, it's interesting that in the ancient Near East, uh, divorce in the Old Testament is unique. It's unique in that it is a very lofty view of marriage. And it's concerned for the rights of the wife in the event of a separation, which is why, quote, a certificate of divorce was required in the Jewish community where it was not required in any of the ancient Near, Old, Near Eastern communities of that day. This was meant to govern and to regulate against the abuse. For you see, if you were to send a wife out onto the streets, you were sending her out of the economy. You were sending her out of land privileges. You were sending her out of access to Wall Street. You were sending her out without a bank. Because the system was deeply, systemically patriarchal and family, if you could say family corporation oriented. Families could be thousands. This was huge stuff. And there was two great traditions within the Jewish community. 
One is the Shammai tradition, tradition, and one is the Hillel. The Shammai was a very unpopular tradition, and in this case, it gave no grounds for divorce except for pornea in the Greek, unchastity or abandonment, narrowly defined. Whereas the Hillel, which was much more popular of a tradition, even if it hath found something unseeming in her, burnt his food, even if he find another more beautiful woman than she, and she no longer finds favor in his eyes, you could be granted a certificate of divorce. Josephus, who was a Pharisee, writes the following paraphrase of Deuteronomy 24, an ancient uh, historian. If one wishes to be divorced from his wife for any cause whatsoever, and many such causes might happen among mankind, let him give assurance in writing that he will never more live with her. And so therefore the Pharisees, by holding up before Christ the Halil view in the most extreme, or I should say licentious form even, which was extremely you know, uh, uh, popular, thinking from his previous teaching that therefore he would affirm the Shammai view, the, the Shammai view, which was very unpopular, well, you can see, playing the word game, crafting a few words, we can sneak him in over there in his zeal for truth in a way that would turn everyone against him, at least everyone in their own holy huddle speaking. You see, what did Christ do? He didn't take the bait. He cut right to the decisive principle. And so what did he do? Well, first, he did what always needs to be done, is he reestablished what we call the positive institution of marriage. Instead of talking about all the abuses and instead of talking about all the exceptions and all the nuances and all the myths and all the popular say-sos and wives' tales, etc., he goes right to the heart of it. In verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them both male and female? Stop. Wow. Both male and female have rights. Both male and female are made in the image of God. Both male and female are precious to God. Both male and female deserve protections from God. And marriage was never meant to be abusive to male or female. All of that. And he goes on to say, therefore a man shall leave his father, a man who is, again, remember, in a headship role within patriarchals, ancient, ancient Near Eastern systems, would have this authority to initiate, would take the vow, for instance. The woman wouldn't even take the vow. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. That's another boom. Now these people knew the booms because they had been grown up in their tradition, the Jewish tradition. That is a radical concept that you're going to leave all loyalties. You're going to leave all former assets. You're going to leave your life practically to leave the household of your father and mother. And you're going to do that in order to cleave or to hold fast your wife. That is 
for her to become the highest of all your priorities. And therefore, the two shall become one. So they are no longer two anymore, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Wow. He went right to it, didn't he? You gotta love him for this. He went to the principle. Let's first establish what marriage is and how precious it is to God before we start talking about how easy is it to get a divorce. But then he said to them in the second question, because they asked back, the Pharisees, verse seven, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? Oh, God, this makes me mad. Did you hear that little word command? Did you hear that? That's a perversion. You know, better word would have been concede. But they had, they had that little word. There we are, playing it. Let's see if he takes it. And marry another, I say, and, and so he, they say a certificate of divorce and to divorce her. What was meant, did you hear this? What was meant to be a concession, like having cops in the world, a concession to evil, having to give the sword to the government as a concession to evil, things like that, was here now commanded of a, God, of a man if he finds a woman, his wife, objectionable? Whatever that means, we're going to get into that in a minute. Wow. Boy, conniving. And so what did the Lord do? Perfect in his wisdom, he said, because of you and the hardness of heart, Moses didn't command it, he says. He allowed it. He allowed it breaking his heart because we remember the first principle. You've missed this, guys. He's saying to the Pharisees. He allowed it, man. Regretfully, sadly, he allowed it to divorce your wives, dot, 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 in order that she could have a life. And the source, because she has rights too. She should be able to go and marry another. But he again says, but from the beginning, this was not supposed to be the way it works. Paraphrase, it was not so. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except the English sexual immorality, the Greek pornea, that word is a very complicated word. We use it, it's been popularized. Pornography, for instance, uses it. But except for pornea, and marries another, that is, except for pornea, commits adultery. He's saying the man has committed adultery by divorcing her, except on the occasion of pornea. Now, I want you to, in the practice, every once in a while I ask you to do this, I don't want you to use an English word anymore for this word. <laughs> You're going to have to get beyond all the ways that the English gets it into our culture and what it means to you. This idea of pornea is very significant because, gosh, it would take me an hour. But I'm going to say it really quick. I promise, I pray God to give me efficiency today. I just want you to know that. 
Pornea in some is anything that abandons the conjugal intimacy of marriage. It's, it's viewed in 1 Corinthians 7, and I could take you there, but I won't. It's there, but it's viewed as even abandonment. If you were to do anything that would force your other for the sake of their safety or health in a very qualified way, in this day and age, we health, health, health. No, in a very significant, as in life-saving way, emotionally, physically, whatever, but specifically if you also, in abandonment, give your exclusive priority and loyalty away to another in relationship to conjugal intimacy. You see, in the Old Testament, to just have sex, if I may say it so bluntly, in the Old Testament was to marry someone. It was that closely identified. Only by exception of the father of the, of the, if you would say, raped wife were you not required to be married. Sex had that kind of a disposition of association with marriage. There's a big reason for that too I wish I could go into. Because the very act of sex was as close to a sacrament as you get and that there is something that there is a there is a sign of incredible grace-based intimacy in the exposure of being naked one to another in Genesis chapter 2. They were naked and not ashamed. That is like the gospel in metaphor right there. To be fully exposed and vulnerable with someone because there's fully this understanding of intimacy that can be so deep and so real and so honest and so exposed that it would take away all fear of rejection because it was an unconditional, grace-based love contract that was being made in Genesis 2. Again, I can't take you to all that, the words that were used, covenantal words, how they mean, but in effect, what was happening there in marriage is that there was this idea that I will forsake all others, I will cleave to you as my spouse, and I will do so even if it kills me. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, that's what it means. And it's used often in covenant contracts throughout the ancient Middle East, even with God. And because of that incredible grace-based covenant, covenant-based marriage versus consumer-based marriage, then we could be assured to let myself be naked, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, physically. To touch my body is to touch my soul. The two are connected. We are not uh, Gnostic in this church and in Scripture. It's a precious thing to touch a body. And this whole thing, Jesus brilliantly is lumping into this response with all this tradition backing him up and saying, don't you get it? Marriage is sacred. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And here you are squabbling with word plays and dissensions and arguments about, you know, how easy should it be for a man to divorce his wife, knowing that everyone out there is taking the 
low road about marriage in a crowd. Crowds are bad governors of truth. They always show up in a bad way in the scripture. Playing to the crowd, politicizing a word study, trying to catch Christ and make him unpopular. Are you getting what's going on here? So now, part two. Think of the response to this. He doesn't get co-opted and all that stuff that I've said. So what did the disciples do? Particularly that second question pertaining to Moses' law. The disciples then say, hold it, I don't get it. Then who would want to get married if it's so hard to get out of it? In other words, if to get married means that you, have, you would give yourself over like this to someone, well, who would want to get married? That's what they say in verse 10. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it not better? Is it not better to marry? That is more profitable? See, the naive remark shows that even Christ's own disciples shared largely the popular view and feeling concerning marriage and divorce, such that since the risk of marriage would be too great given the very limited grounds for divorce, that the disciples themselves wondered out loud, thankfully, if such a commitment is required, then maybe it's just too much. The people thought that marriage would be impossible if the rules were that strict, evidently. Sounds like cold feet the night before you get married, doesn't it? But you see, this passage is really about to go into a incredibly profound situation that has incredibly profound implications for us today. So he corrects them. He corrects them. He says, no, you're, you're missing the whole point. That it's true that, that this is a very high degree of loyalty that you're pledging when you get married. And it's true that only in the most extreme situations should a certificate of divorce be allowed in order to preserve and protect those who are vulnerable within this relationship, the innocent, if you will. But then he says this. I'll read it again. Not everyone can receive what I'm saying to you but only those to whom it has been given. What? Marriage. To whom marriage has been given. For there are eunuchs, and just celibates, or singles, who have been so from birth. I didn't say that, did I? I did say that. Doesn't play well in our culture war right now, does it? What does that mean? And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Mm. What does that mean? And there are eunuchs who are made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now you're going to have to give me grace, people. You know, there are times when you deal with things like this and you know you're walking into a hornet's nest and I know that I'm walking into a hornet's nest. I'm not an idiot. And we're going to just have to be careful to do what we've got to do with this. 
But anything I'm about to say could probably be misunderstood, so I'm going to make sure I say it clearly what I need you to hear. But what does this passage mean? He gave three situations where it would be better not to be married. What does he mean? And so, literally, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there is something about this person from birth that predisposed them, if I may use that term, away from marriage. Now, I want you to be clear. Many today have rightly discerned that where does it in the Bible say that marriage couldn't be between, say, a man and a man and a woman and a woman? There are many places in the Bible that, that, uh, that speak against and condemn any kind of form of homosexuality but that a well with any kind of form of sexuality whatsoever outside of marriage. It's such a different framework than today. I beg you to hear what I just said. It wasn't even in the purview that there be this other category of marriage. What was in the purview was a solid, agreed-upon position that marriage was between a man and a woman. There were no other options. And sex was reserved only for marriage because of that sacred and high role that it played relative to this covenant of grace nature of marriage in the first place. And throughout the scripture, heterosexual sex and homosexual sex, as that was current in that day, are condemned, as it is in the Old Testament as well as in the New Covenant, clearly. I could give you some passages if you'd like. But here's the thing. I'll get them to you here in a minute. Let's see. I have them somewhere coming up. Um, here's the thing. With that statement now, so now you heard me, right? I'm tempted to say it a third time, maybe third, you know. There's nowhere in the scripture that I know that by good and necessary inference could possibly lead you to believe that Gay marriage is biblical. Sexuality in marriage. But I want you, if you're thinking that is cruel, I want you to please give me a break, just for a moment. Wait till I get to something else. But for now, let's stay there. And so, could it be possible that when Jesus is talking about this, does it allow for there to be some condition, some predisposition. Could it be anatomical? Yeah, but that's at a very low amount. Could it be psychological? Yeah. Emotional, maybe. He gave two others, remember. One was that someone does something to them that makes them single. He's most likely talking about castration right there in that day, where when someone was put over the harem of a king or even over a household, often as servants or slaves, they were castrated in order to take away any possibility of him misusing his service in sexual ways. And then the third, of course, is there's a calling. There's a principled calling 
someone who understands that marriage will take them away from something that they believe God has called them to do, that for these, their life it is of a, a more significant import, importance and therefore they were to uh, you know, desire not to be married. That's legit. And so here are three legitimate things. Eunuchs who have been made so from birth, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Now, I think about this in our current age, and I think, well, how could that happen? I think one way it could happen is, is called gender stereotyping. We believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. We define men and women by their sexuality, their, their, uh, both their genetics and their anatomic, anatomic, and I know that that can get crossed sometimes. We'll get into that later. But it's also true that someone could grow up thinking that they're not properly manly or womanly. We've done this for since I've been in this church, 28 years. I remember doing a, a lecture on sexuality, and, it was, and I'm going to say now what I said then before a lot of this other stuff had even come up. But the fact is gender is. Gender, if you understand the way I'm using, is not the same as sex or, sex, or sexual you know, anatomy or whatever. Gender is a cultural concept of what it is. The best word I could use that are gender words is masculine and feminine. And sadly, even the Christian church sometimes have been co-opted into culturally popular gender sort of associations and biases. I would defy you to go to the Bible and find any description of what it means to be a masculine man or a feminine woman. I have tried, other scholars have tried, there's nothing there. If you go through the history of humankind, you'll see that in different ages, femininity was different. What they would glorify and even the body types of men or women were different. It's amazing how it identified with, you know, particularly certain vocational uh, capacities in different eras of, of society. You can see how going from an agrarian society, say, to an entertainment society, how the gender type would change and be influenced. I don't know what Jesus meant by that some are made to be single from birth, but it could it include a predisposition perhaps informed by the second, how we are made eunuchs by the traditions of men, could it be possible that there are some who were born with a disposition not to be attracted to a masculine, if they're a woman, or a feminine, if they're a man, person, and therefore conclude that I'm not supposed to be married? Or, if you believe in gay marriage, I'm to have a gay marriage in search of intimacy, in search of not being lonely. These are complicated things. I don't, I'm not even trying to convince you of everything I'm saying right now. I think everything I'm saying is coming right from the scripture, at least by good necessary inference possibilities. But the point I'm really wanting to say is, let's not lose the point. Jesus is trying to save marriage here. And he's trying to do it in a way to protect people from the abuse of marriage, since it's such a powerful institution. 
And he gives these three exceptions to where, you know, ordinarily, yes, people should and desire and pray to be married. Ordinarily, but there are exceptions. Perhaps another, so by birth or so by man, you know, in God's providence, there isn't someone that I've been attracted to and is attracted to me in a way that we could be married. Or there isn't someone who had passed the test that I'm going to give you later, but I might as well give it to you now because I'm all off the map right now anyway. Holiness and service to God. You would want to be married insofar as you can say, as a Christian especially, it's in service to holiness and service to God that I get married. That's the test. And there's physical attraction and compatibility. It's really simple. I'm speaking to the younger folks right now. The millennial, you know, it's not rocket science, people. People have written, made a lot of money on you. Really, physical attraction, vocational, personal compatibility, but most important for the Christian, you can see this marriage as being um, in service to a, a life pursuit of holiness and service to God. That's right out of Thessalonians, by the way. I'll get to you in a minute. There are those, I think, that we need to be sensitive to. I think we need to be sensitive to those particularly who, for whatever reason, find themselves to be of a predisposition to be attracted to someone of the same sex. We voted as a presbytery not long ago. There was a bill about this whole issue, and it was, at least in this presbytery, uh, discerned that we can't play word games. If someone says that they are a gay Christian, we discern that there needs to be room to discern before we say that's unbiblical to say, well, do you mean gay as an adjective or do you mean gay as a noun? An adjective is not my identity. It's a disposition. It's a characteristic. A noun is my identity. To say I'm a gay Christian I would say if you say that and gay is the noun, then that would be unbiblical. It would be unbiblical because we are here, according to Christ, not fundamentally a disposition, a gender disposition. We are fundamentally in Christ made in the image of God. All people being very equal, male and female alike. And there can be a disposition that if ever there were to be temptation to sin, it would be with the same sex, not with the opposite sex. But because your fundamental identity is I'm a Christian, the noun part, then you could actually be saying I'm a gay Christian precisely in order to make it clear that the only way to be faithful as a person who woke up and realized that he or she had same-sex attraction as a natural predisposition, he never asked for it, he never wanted it, he couldn't turn it off, he went through conversion therapy, everything, nothing would work, he has it, or she has it. Like I have same opposite-sex attraction. And he says the words, or this gay Christian would say, I'm a gay Christian only to make acknowledge that as a Christian I have vowed myself faithful to God's word, 
and to the high and lofty purpose of sacred marriage as defined by God in all of its beauty. And I'm committed, therefore, to being, say, celibate up and until I find someone of the opposite sex that I'm attracted to, which can happen in a cross-gender way in our society, for instance. And I would want to applaud that, Christian, wouldn't you? I'd want to say, wow, and you know what? You're going to suffer a lot of deep struggles that I don't, particularly in the area of loneliness. Maybe we and I need to be more compassionate, and maybe I and we need to be more concerned to think about systemically how can we come alongside people like that, bring structures to bear and even institutions that we might provide in a way that would say, yes, you deserve not to be lonely. And to have certain, even if civil rights that are given to you, that you might be not lonely as you grow old. There's so much more complicated here. I beg you, before you lynch me, whichever side you are, there's so much that wants us to go back to the pharisaical approach to something like this and to have code words determine orthodoxy or not. When what we should be doing is looking at the first principles, asking what is marriage? What was its purpose? How beautiful it is. What are those exceptions to when someone should not get married? There are some, three specifically here by Christ. And if in case you don't find yourself from birth, predisposed, whatever that means, to marriage as defined by God, then you would commit yourself to celibacy as an honorable calling, as a beautiful calling, even if it, like any other calling, will have its challenges and particular areas of struggle. Well, let me just read this one thing that I know some of you are familiar with. I'm going to close this off. Holy moly. I can't remember where I'm supposed to stop in this new time. I think I just went too long. Um, I would encourage you to get, uh, uh, what is his name? Wes, um, Wesley Hill, washed and waiting. And here's the way he puts it. For as long as I could remember, I have never been drawn, even as a child, to other males in any vaguely confusing way after puberty. I'd come to realize that I had a steady, strong, unremitting, exclusive sexual attractions to persons of the same sex. Now stop there. Don't judge him yet. He's going to condemn his sexual attractions as sin. For me and other gay people, even when we're not willfully cultivating desire, we know that when attraction does come, most of the time it could be as unlooked for and as unwanted as it was for me that day on the dance floor of my friend's wedding reception. It will be attraction to someone of the same sex. And in those moments, it feels as though there is no desire that isn't lust, no attraction that isn't illicit. And I never have uh, the moment um, described as looking and desiring. It just happens. Every attraction I experience before I ever get to intentional, willful, indulgent desire seems bent, broken, misshapen. I think this grieves God, but I can't help it. It happens before I can even think about it. 
I want to acknowledge that some of you in this room maybe, and those who are listening, understand what he's talking about. And I want you to hear me. I cry for you. I can't imagine the pain. And Christ cries for you too. Now you need to know that I share many of these descriptions with you. Just directed at other things. Things that I could, I could take that paragraph, I could literally read it to define, well, my tendency towards unwillful lust or lust for things that I don't have, including other women. I can think of this same description as how it could describe struggles maybe with alcohol or with you know, uh, houses and with materialism where I sit in bed and I lust and I crave and I think and I connive and no one in the culture seems to put me and, and condemn me for that. All sins that are right there alongside of homosexuality. I grieve for you that you've been chosen to receive so much blunt uh, curse language, sometimes by the church. You see, I read Wesley Hill's book, and I thought the second half of that book is the best sanctification book I've ever read. A man who's taking seriously the lordship of Jesus Christ in his life, but a man who had the courage to take seriously that my struggle's not so different from all of you. But you just don't seem to acknowledge your sin being that bad. He acknowledges that sinful desire is a sin. But he describes himself as a gay Christian to emphasize that just having a natural predisposition doesn't make it right. And so I'm going to say that too. Just having a natural predisposition doesn't make it right. It says we were born in sin. It's called original sin, which makes habitual sins, which means total depravity, which means we all struggle with this. Where before I ever had a chance to get my head around it, I'm finding myself daydreaming on something that would be sinful for me to indulge. So let's all give each other a break, not by diminishing the word of God, but by going to it in principled ways. Let's do it justice. Quit the code words. And let's talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.